A reading from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you week in and week out, and we hear all sorts of words, uh, words of grace, songs of praise, wise sayings, but we also have to heed the warnings, and we have to uh, love you as a whole. And so we pray that you would give us grace for a hard word and a hard topic today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are wrapping up this evening this series called Theology and Life, and it really could be renamed, you know, sort of hot topics, difficult topics in the Christian faith. And the last one we're hitting is this one on the idea of eternal judgment and justice or hell. And I wanted to start off with a quote. The bottom line on the whole issue of hell is that if hell is real, then God, and therefore Jesus, is a sadistic lunatic. And the only way to get around that logically airtight truth is to assert that God's understanding of justice has virtually nothing in common with all of humanity's ideas about justice. Now that ex excerpt from a writer in the Huffington Post I think is a pretty good summary of how most modern people think 
and feel about the idea of eternal punishment or hell. And in that quote, he actually puts his finger on um, two, his finger on two things that are key. One is the key issue, and that is justice, because behind God's wrath is the idea of justice. And the second is a key question. Is God's justice the same as ours? Is God's justice the same as ours? Now, modern people tend to believe it is. That's why the notion of hell seems cruel and absurd. But if you look at things historically over the centuries, uh, that view is fairly novel and new. I sit on the theological examining committee of our presbytery. That's the region of churches in this area. And this past week, one of the candidates uh, presented his theological paper, and it was on this topic, eternal punishment. And one of the committee members said, uh, were you able to find, because he was dealing with the debate about hell, and he said, were you able to find uh, some sources a couple hundred years ago to add to this paper? I don't see as many. And he said, well, you know, I looked, but to be honest with you, it wasn't that much of a debate until about a hundred years ago. You know, that's when the widespread uh, objection and rejection of the idea of hell really took root and grew. But I would say this, um, typically the reason we have that objection and rejection is because modern people understand themselves to be educated, enlightened, and moral. And I would say, if that's how you see yourself, I appeal to you then, as we approach this topic, to apply those things that you might be self-critical, that you might be aware of the way your own culture and day influences you as you think about this topic of hell and justice. So I, I want to look at it through two different questions. What is hell and is it just? What is hell and is it just? Okay, now Americans' belief in the afterlife has been pretty steady for the last, since the 1940s. There was a recent poll done uh, by 60 Minutes and Vanity Fair, and this is what we got, no surprise. 65% believe in heaven, hell, or purgatory, and then it drops way down to the single digits. 7% uh, believe they'll go into another dimension after death. 6% believe they'll be reborn on the earth, and 2% believe they'll become ghosts. Just 13% uh, believe nothing will happen, and then another 7% said, I don't really know. So you got 80% of people believe they are eternal, believe that they will live forever. And the Bible would agree with that. But the Bible also teaches that the spiritual disposition or attitude someone has while they're on earth doesn't change just because they die. It doesn't change when they transfer from uh, this life to the afterlife. And this is one of the myths that people tend to believe, right? We have this idea that when, after you die, people get nice. And, uh, you know, think about that. Uh, do we believe that Hitler, after he died, became nice? Do we believe that, you know, um, a greedy, selfish, malicious person, just because they die, become nice? Do we believe someone that rejects God and his grace and the idea of Jesus Christ just becomes accepting because they die? It's not logical, right? 
This is one of the reasons in the Bible, uh, punishment is eternal. Jesus mentions that in verse 46, eternal punishment. And that's because people don't change after they die. The disposition they've had on earth remains. And it really brings up a painful reality and mystery, doesn't it? We all probably know someone who, um, and maybe we love them, who wound other people terribly, including themselves. And although we plead with them or confront them, they don't change. It's one of the most difficult things. In hell, there will not be a person that goes, God, I really wanted to believe in you and love you and serve my fellow man, but you wouldn't let me. That's a cosmic impossibility. Rather, what people choose now has everlasting consequences. And while we may know that person who we plead with and weep over and just can't understand why, They won't change. God knows that experience every day because he holds out his hands of mercy and grace daily to have people reject him. And not unlike ourselves, there becomes a decision point in the relationship. Maybe for you at some point you said, you know, I just can't have, I've got to separate this person from my life. God has a decision point. It's called judgment day. When a decision is finally made about the relationship, This parable is one of a group of parables that Jesus tells to remind us of this reality. We read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. He comes back to judge. The first time he came, he came to die, to lay down his life, to be Savior. The second time he comes, he comes as a judge, and before him will be gathered the nation. So there's no favoritism. Any and everybody will stand before God. But the reason Jesus tells these parables is in part to remind us that now is the age of grace and forgiveness. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time and opportunity to repent and that we wouldn't spurn God's patience as day after day for each of us, he reaches out through many different ways to show that he's gracious and forgiving. But along with the parables, the Bible also gives us some metaphors, some images to help us understand this idea of hell. They're to work as smelling salts to wake us up. And while these images aren't literal, they are shocking. And they're meant to be shocking because we're numbed. Because we get hardened in our pride. We get hardened in our self-righteousness. So the Bible uses some very shocking images to wake us up and to get us to think. First of all, the term hell itself, in the Greek it's Gehenna, you know, it historically was a valley that had a terrible past. King Ahaz, uh, the king of Israel, used it to sacrifice his own children. And then in Jesus' day, it was a dump, a trash dump for bodies and refuse. And so just the image, the name conjured up things that weren't pleasant, that were difficult. And then there are several other images were given in the Bible. The most common one used over 20 times is fire. 
Now, again, many times folks parody this, but none of these are meant to be literal. Of course, a soul can't be burned. But rather, fire represents unquenchable agony. Just like an addict who can't get enough satisfaction. You know, an addict that can't find a way to fulfill their need. Just like our selfish desires consume us. This is the idea of fire in hell. And then another one is outer darkness. You hear the words that Jesus says in the parable, depart from me. This idea of putting away, being separated. The Bible says that every good and beautiful and perfect thing is a result of God's nature. It's a gift from God. And so hell is the absence of the goodness of God. The absence of those things, that all goes away. Because it's been part of the nature of God all along. You know, maybe the best thing we can liken it to is being if you've been in a war zone or a disaster zone. But even that's not comparable because usually there's someone there that is kind and showing mercy. Another, uh, another metaphor we get is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this, this deals with the emotional experience. And here the idea is regret and rage that are unleashed. Um, people without the blessings of God and without the restraint of God's spirit aren't very pleasant to be around. You know, this strikes at one of the, um, I think, you know, common notions in modern life that hell is a party. You know, I'd rather laugh with the sinners and die rather than die with the saints. This idea that hell will be a place where my friends are and we'll spend time and we'll have a good time. Um, you know, your friends aren't your friends in hell. And there's nothing to party with. It's really an absurd idea because this idea of outer darkness is that everything good and enjoyable is gone. Even the music even listening to Highway to Hell won't be possible if you enjoy that, you know. And it does have incredible guitar work and a great groove. Uh, Jesus told uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And remember, parables aren't literal. They're stories, uh, short stories to kind of provoke us. And in it, a rich man was a materialist all his life and selfish. He gets sent to Hades, hell. But you notice he never says, forgive me, God, because I've sinned against you and my fellow man. He never says, you know, God, I've spurned your kindness. Rather, he says, get me out of here. Bring me some water. Show me relief. You know, just as there's a difference between uh, being, getting caught and being sorry, there's a difference between repentance and wanting relief. And we find out in the Scripture that, um, you know... All of us want relief. I, you may or may not know this. I can't remember if I shared it, but I was the agitator in my family. You know, I was a constant agitator. And I, you know, would love to just sort of get my brother in a, just to get him in a bad mood out of sorts. So back in the day when you didn't have a remote control, uh, I'd come, have I told you guys this story before? No, no, good, good. Okay. Uh, I don't have another one, so I'm going to, I'm going to tell it anyway. But, uh, Anyway, but, you know, I would like to go in, and he'd be watching the TV, and I would turn the channel and sit down. And he would say, turn it back. I would say, hmm? You know, turn it back. And before I know it, he'd be rubbing my forehead in the carpet, you know? And in that moment, I would just say, you know, he'd say, you know, you have enough? Yeah, let me go, let me go, let me go. And he'd let me go, and then I'd get up and do it again, you know? So I didn't want to repent. I just wanted relief, Right? 
And so we have to get away from this idea that, you know, folks are sort of in a place where they really want, and, and it also gets to this, we hear this comment often, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, if, what if we mean by that is that anybody in that place bears responsibility, that's true. But if what we mean is that uh, they choose to stay when they could leave, well, that's not true. Just like a prisoner is sentenced, people are sentenced to hell. People are sentenced to judgment before the throne of God. And the last metaphor we're given is the idea of being bound with everlasting change, and that imparts punishment and permanence. These are hard things. I mean, these are not easy things to hear. The, the state of being in, in a, a place of hunger and thirst, a feeling cast out from everything that's good. You know, a place where you actually live under dread and the shame of what you've done, but with no remorse. But, you know, can we really say it's that far-fetched? Because all of it tastes that in this life. Really, the issue we have is with degrees. And by the way, you know, there are degrees of sin, so there will be degrees of punishment. But this idea that this notion is so far-fetched, it really isn't. Because we know these things, we taste a little bit of this judgment. Now, some theologians put forth the idea of uh, annihilationism. And I think, you know, it's very appealing, but it's just not biblical. It's the idea that people basically who face judgment will just poof, non-existent. We, we saw the second uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And when the villain, you know, and this happened to Lord, Lord Voldemort too, right? Uh, when the villain dies, they just sort of disintegrate. But, you know, the problem with that is uh, it doesn't take into account the human person. But number two, it doesn't satisfy justice. Which gets us to the second question. Is hell just? Um, modern people struggle the most with this idea of hell. The idea of judgment. And I would say modern Westerners. And I want to say there's four reasons why we struggle so much with it. Uh, first of all, we struggle with it because we really are inconsistent with our understanding of justice. Okay? We're not consistent with justice. Uh, there's something like 15 million civil lawsuits a year in America. I mean, we really care about our rights. In fact, we like it so much we have daytime TV where we watch people sue each other. Right? So this is a big deal. Uh, we put a high premium on getting and giving justice in America. Recently reading the story of the arrest of Harvey Weinstein, one of the victims said, I thought I would never see the day of justice. We long and labor for the day of justice, but will we deprive God of his day of justice? Are we being consistent? Justice is a good thing. And you know something? There are many, many, many people, more than we can count, who have stolen, who have killed, who abuse, who slander, who will never face punishment on earth never face criminal punishment on earth. And now we're not, we haven't even gotten to the non-criminal stuff, the child that's emotionally abused, the person of color that experiences racism day in and day out. What about the day of justice for those? Where is the day of reckoning for those? The scripture would say there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of justice for victims 
that have suffered. And it teaches us two things. One, um, it actually holds back vengeance. One of the reasons that people can hold back their vengeance is because they believe God will bring them justice. But second of all, it confirms God's goodness because justice is a good thing. And God would not be good if he weren't just. It's just impossible for us to say, you know, I'm going to have a God of love without saying I'm going to have a God of justice. I'm going to have a God of goodness but not have a God of righteousness. It's illogical. It's impossible. We must have both if he is to be good and to be loving. What kind of God who loves doesn't care about justice for a victim? So number one reason we struggle with it, we're inconsistent with our own understanding of justice. The second one is we believe that hell is arbitrary. That is, it's just sort of by chance and happenstance. You notice, though, in the parable here that Jesus says that judgment is not arbitrary. It's actually based on people's deeds. It's based on the life he lived. Now, in this parable, he's talking about the way people treated his followers. But in the end, you can extend that because the great law of the Bible is love God and love neighbor. It's how you love everybody. And I think it's very interesting the things he mentioned are sort of passionate issues and causes for modern people. That's what we would call social action. And so he's basically saying you failed in social action toward your brother and toward your sister. These are the things that he listed. And notice the things that he lists aren't transgressions, they're omissions. And it reminds us we're called to do more than just not do wrong to people. We're called to do right. Imagine a dad or a mom that said, I was a good parent, I fed my kid, I clothed my kid, and I didn't hit him too much. But they never loved them. They never affirmed them. They never encouraged None of us would say that's a good parent. So how can we say a good person is someone that hasn't totally fulfilled what's required of them? Judgment on the last day will not be based on, was I better than my neighbor? It'll be based on, did I love God and love neighbor with everything I got as much as I loved myself? Judgment is not arbitrary. Sometimes folks will say, you know, I, I, don't, I can't believe in a God who would send me to hell for not believing in him. But you know something? Beliefs aren't neutral. Ideas have consequences. And actually, unbelief is sort of a seed. Unbelief, you know, in the Bible, unbelief is more than a rejection of facts. It's rejection of morality. Because belief is more than just intellectual. It's embracing God's ethic. It's embracing God's kingdom. And so God, God will not judge anybody arbitrarily because he cannot do that according to his nature. But if any of us tried to stand before God, could we really boast? Thirdly, why people struggle with hell is the idea that hell is a sadistic place of torture. But if we believe that God is righteous and good, we have to believe that that can't be the case. Now, we are told, and Jesus said, that hell was created for the devil and his demons initially. And so, you know, the devil doesn't run hell. He's in hell. 
But we can know this for sure. It is not a place of sadistic torture because God's character will not allow it. It will be actually a just place where punishment is just according to people's lives. There would be a, a loss of God's goodness, but also the light of God's presence. Hell is not just the absence of God's goodness. It's the presence of God's righteous light and anger. And then lastly, I think the number one reason, I said that at first, so this is my real number one reason, that we believe we struggle with hell is that we believe we're God's moral equal, or at least better. I mean, that was in the quote, really. You notice the writer said, listen, if God's, God's definition of justice doesn't match humanity's, then he's the sadistic one. You see the assumption there that we are God's moral peers or equals, or at least better. But how can it be a God that is perfectly righteous and just? We have to believe that he's higher in this way than us. We have to understand that just by definition. But I would just appeal to your own life as a testimony. I have my own life as a testimony. I mean, you and I hold people to standards all the time that we don't fulfill. I mean, just yesterday, you know, there was someone in front of me and they, they, you can tell they're on their phone because they're not going at the green light. And I gave them a whole quarter second before, bop. But the day before that, I was doing the exact same thing. Sitting at a stop sign going like that and I got beeped at. I mean, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And it's not just an occasional thing. It's a daily thing. Let's just be humble. Let's just be real. Daily, I have a hard heart toward my neighbor. Daily, I think evil thoughts. Daily, I objectify things and objectify people. Daily, I strive for my own comfort first. I mean, am I really the best judge of what is just? My appeal is, are we willing to be humble? Are we willing to consider? And in the end, do you really want to lift your life up against God's law and have that be your comfort and hope? Because the good news is, is you don't have to. As much as these words are heavy, as much as these images are heavy upon us, I said we are in the age of salvation. You can go to the crucifixion and suffering of Jesus Christ and see every one of those images played out for you. It's on the cross that Jesus says, I thirst. And what is he given? He's given a bitter cup of salvation to drink. He drinks God's wrath down to its dregs, as the Old Testament say. Thirsty, but drinking in God's wrath. He's cast out in utter darkness. We're told that the sky grows dark, but he's cast out of the city. He's out of the holy city. He's rejected by humanity as he suffers. On top of that, he's not just bound as a prisoner, he's nailed to a cross. Christ in his suffering is enduring hell for all that would believe in him. This is what God is depicting before you and I. He's going, as bad as this is, I want you to see, I put it on my son. As alarming and scary this is, I want you to see that I'm so just and my son is so just that I had to bring justice upon him. He was innocent, but he bared my iniquities. 
And so he had to have justice upon him. And so you see, it's it's scary. And by the way, no one can be scared out of hell. Perfect love is the only thing that casts out fear. But as we look at the cross of Christ, it's in this moment that God is saying, don't you see, this this doesn't have to be your reality. But will we make today the day of salvation? That's the question that you need to ponder and I need to ponder. Let's pray. Father, we know even in your warning, you decide uh, you mean to love us. Even as you sober us, you mind, uh, mean to wake us up and draw us to yourself. I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that you would guard us from pride. In Christ's name, amen.